empowering those people in those communities in these grassroots organizations to follow through with what they've learned and to work to really have a voice in these different spaces. Welcome back to A Steep Road to Freedom, the ACLU of Ohio's public education and advocacy podcast for all things bail and pretrial reform. If you've followed us on this journey, you know that there's a growing consensus that bail reform is sorely needed in the state of Ohio. We've heard from the brave voices of affected Ohioans, seasoned expertise of policy advocates and activists eager to capture the hearts and minds of the public. In the first few episodes, we referred to bail reform as a social justice buzz phrase, a trending topic, which in some states has fallen short on its promise of reaffirming someone's right to liberty and the right of pretrial release. Last week, we spoke with the Juvenile Justice Coalition about how pretrial justice is a juvenile justice issue. And a few episodes back, we talked about how risk assessments are tools to avoid. But did you know that there are other non-negotiables we want out of the conversation? When I ask what those reforms should look like, or more importantly, what we should avoid, we get mixed responses from legislators and even stakeholders at the forefront of this issue. Remember, there's no automatic one-size-fits-all solution to bail reform given the broad diversity of Ohio's different cities, geographies, and needs. However, there are universal themes to avoid. Think of this episode as a policy cheat sheet on all things bail reform. These are reforms that are either superficial, racially biased, easily undermined, or simply fall short without companion reforms and procedural safeguards alongside them. Malikta, before jumping in, let's remind our audience what constitutes a campaign victory. We want our courts and our entire legal system to prioritize release, decriminalize, defelonize, and divert people to community-based alternatives whenever possible. From there, we need to create a wide net of people able to get released on no conditions or the least restrictive conditions made available. When you say least restrictive conditions, what does that mean exactly? Do restrictions still deprive people of their right to pretrial freedom? And what about people who may be serious flight risks or do pose a safety threat to their community? All good questions. In terms of upholding the value of pretrial liberty, least restrictive conditions always start with no conditions at all. The point of bail is release to ensure reappearance in court. And then, from there, depending on the situation, courts should have systems put in place to promote this reappearance, things like calling and text reminders. And research has shown that the vast majority of folks are likely to reappear in court by signing a contract to guarantee court reappearance. And that makes sense if they receive something like a text reminder of their court date a week or a few days before. In the most ideal situation, they would be released with no conditions and no cash bond. And what do we call that in Ohio? Personal recognizance or own recognizance, PR or OR. So instead of relying on a bail schedule, a judge would make a decision to impose conditions if necessary. What factors should they consider? Factors can include a history of employment, their presence or leadership within the community, maybe even locate family members or friends to vouch for that person to reappear. So what prevents someone's defense attorney presenting this information to a judge right now? So, of course, when you're in jail, it poses barriers to readily accessing your lawyer. And sometimes public defenders have a portion of this information, but yet again, it's difficult for them to make time to have in-depth conversations that could strengthen a bail argument. We need determinations to be made after a judge goes through an individualized assessment with this information in hand and assign conditions tailored to that person. So let's return to this idea of conditions. What other conditions are we talking about? Like, Checking in with someone once a week, and what exactly do you mean by speedy? 
Depending on the situation, this can mean anything from staying away from the person involved in the allegation or undergoing drug and alcohol screenings. And by speedy, it means we can't have people spending full weekends in jail because a judge or a magistrate isn't available for two or three days. We need speedy bail hearings where a judge is able to make an individualized assessment to determine bail 24 to 48 hours after the initial arrest. I see. So addressing the crisis at the front end. You know, it seems like this would narrowly limit both who is arrested and who is jailable before conviction. I know data collection and transparency has been a major area of concern. What are ways for the public to hold judges and jail administrators accountable? Like any sound public policy, we need comprehensive data collection to monitor the bail decisions of elected officials and track the number of people held pretrial. A lack of concrete data around pretrial systems is a factor into why the number of unconvicted people in our county jails exploded in the first place. Got it. When we return, let's get into the meat of this episode, like what Ohio needs to avoid, aka pretrial profiteering and the overuse of GPS monitors. This week's episode is sponsored by Open Arms Community Center of Toledo. Open Arms is a community center organized to eliminate social tension associated with teen violence, unemployment, and a lack of inclusion with community elders. Open Arms hosts a series of meaningful programs and mentorships to bring about positive outcomes that will guide people to positive success. Learn more at openarmsoftoledo.org. Now, back to the episode. All right, Mel, why is it important to talk about what we don't want with bail reform? Does that seem a little counterproductive? Not at all. Some of these reforms that we want to avoid are already being implemented across the state as we speak. And of course, we don't want the unintended consequence of bail reform to be more people held in preventative detention without any option to get out. We don't want to see an increase in racial disparities or further invasions of privacy or violations of civil liberties. A benefit of Ohio being one in a series of states in the midst of adopting bail reform is that we have models to point to for inspiration and lessons. So let's get into it. What should Ohioans be mindful of? And what should the public and policymakers avoid? Pretrial profiteering and excessive electronic monitoring. Electronic monitoring is when we force people to wear GPS ankle monitors as a condition of their pretrial release. Pretrial profiteering is when companies or the government make money off people going through the pretrial system. The cases where pretrial supervision is deemed necessary should be rare. Giving everyone an ankle bracelet isn't bail reform done right. You know, in fact, I remember reading that in Cuyahoga County, there were 586 illegally innocent pre-trial individuals who were forced to pay $56 a week in their GPS leasing fees. So yeah, it looks like this is already happening. Yep, and the situation exacerbates poverty. Any associated costs should not be passed on to the person released pre-trial. In short, people shouldn't have to bear the costs of their own supervision, and certainly companies should not be able to profit off people being released. Remember, we don't want conditions to mirror that of probation. We don't want to further enrich the system with money extracted from poor and working class people. Who's benefiting from the thousands of dollars on GPS monitors? You know, who gets the buck, so to speak? There are corporations who dominate this corrections market. Services like reporting and electronic monitoring represents one of the fastest growing sectors of their industry. We don't want to pass the huge financial burden of paying for GPS monitoring fees and the upfront costs to the defendant. I'd like to add that sometimes this financial burden could be more than the court had required for bond itself. Do we have any data or statistical breakdowns of who gets assigned ankle monitors? 
And also, do people get their money back? They don't get their money back, even if they're found innocent. And judges don't conduct hearings on whether a defendant can even afford to pay for their monitoring before making it a condition of their own release. In terms of hard numbers, the data is not available, but all indications suggest this form of mass supervision, like mass incarceration, disproportionately affects Black people and people of color. What are some of the other flaws of this type of monitoring? Some people on monitors are further constrained by geographic restrictions, areas in the city or neighborhood that they can't go without triggering an alarm. James Kilgmore, a research scholar at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, has cautioned that these exclusionary zones could lead to e-gentrification, effectively keeping people out of more prosperous neighborhoods. Is there a possibility that the monitor could go off by simply being a few blocks away from an arrest happening somewhere nearby? You know, it sounds like electronic monitoring violates someone's most basic right, which is freedom of movement. Yep, a technical violation could lead someone back to jail. And we can't overlook the stigma of wearing an ankle bracelet. You could lose your job, be perceived as someone under house arrest, all of this despite the fact that you're still technically innocent. And from stories in our research, we know that these restrictions still lead to people taking unnecessary plea deals. What are some other pretrial conditions that create additional barriers during this pretrial release stage? Other pretrial restrictions can include drug and alcohol testing, especially for those whose cases have nothing to do with possession or substance abuse. This has caused severe and unnecessary hardship for people who are legally innocent. Defendants have to pay for these screenings too. At the ACLU of Ohio, we have stories to demonstrate how pretrial conditions undermine the ability of people to support themselves and their family while their case is pending in many of the same ways that incarceration does. Setting unnecessary, intrusive conditions sets up people to fail. To learn more about the bail reform policy we want, we spoke with Sharice Frano and Dr. Zaria Davis of the Pretrial Justice Institute one of the first organizations looking critically at pretrial detention and creating innovative solutions for stakeholders at the county and state level. So I'm Sharice, and I have been at the Pretrial Justice Institute since about 2006, so almost 14 years, in the position as the CEO since for about five years now. Came to PJI in 2006 as the deputy. So I really came more with an operational perspective. Um, I came to sort of set up and I really want to make sure that the legacy that prior directors and the prior boards and our founders and all of that, they had one dream really, and that was pretrial liberty in America. And so I feel a real sort of familial obligation to work as hard as I can while I'm, I can still see my computer screen. So for me, I was introduced to this work through my own lived experiences. I am formerly incarcerated and really saw a lot of things on the pretrial side, not really for myself, but other people that I engage with in the various jails that I sat in during my time. And when I got home, I was very much interested in what was going on here in Hamilton County. And I learned that there was a bail reform committee to really work to address issues of bail here in Ohio. So I started in that space um, as a community advocate, really working to change what it looked like in my county, understanding, though, that policy goes beyond just my county. And so also doing work on a state level as it relates to making some changes here. I'm looking at, obviously, Criminal Rule 46 and some other things, looking at um, who we're bringing into office as far as our legislators, our judges, and um, really have been 
focused on working with our partners here in Ohio, developing some plans to engage our community stakeholders um, since we've been talking a lot with our system here in the state, but also looking at how can we engage the community as well when it comes to pre-trial liberties. So you mentioned engagement with the community and something that I found uh, doing this work with the ACLU is bill reform at first seemed very much driven and pushed by lawyers, policy experts, judges. So when you're talking about incorporating the community vision and incorporating community energy, how do you see PJI's role? And, and uh, as an organization, what brought you to that, that conclusion, that understanding that none of this will work without community buy-in and input? So I can start for at least the 15 years, uh, almost 15 years I've been here, our mission has really been focused on advancing safe, fair, and effective both youth and adult pretrial justice practices. And we've always said that we were working in maybe not as publicly as we should have, but it always was a decarceral frame for us. The whole point of pretrial reform is that there are too many people who are sitting in jail pretrial not just on money bonds they can't meet, which forces them to take considerations around plea deals that they may otherwise not take, which leads to convictions, which you know also destabilizes and has a, a lasting impact on their mobility, both physical and economic. But it was also the idea that we didn't just need to ensure people weren't sleeping in, in jail beds uh, in a presumed innocent status, but also that on the reverse, the sort of one or two out of every 100 people who pose a very significant danger, typically to a known individual, could pay a bondsman and walk right out the door. And so it, for us, had really two significant community impacts. And we always felt like we were working on behalf of community But when you are a mostly white organization with white-led leadership, a white board, and you get funding from foundations and the government, it isn't your first thought to uh, consider the impacted community. The fundamental community to whom we are accountable are people who are most impacted and directly impacted by those things and by the policies and practices. And so really in terms of the design and theory of change and what is required and necessary, in our opinion now, sort of shouldn't come from some small think tank, but should come from, you know, interpreting and pragmatically translating the demands of community to the system. So how exactly does PGI do that? I know you all are notorious for working with folks across the aisle, notorious for working with stakeholders that at first seem very resistant to this notion of pretrial liberty and upholding that within their own systems. How, how does PGI, I guess, you know, do what it does and achieve the success that it sees? The notion of working across the aisle is, to me, as common as having to have Thanksgiving dinner with my extended family. Within families today, we are living in a bipartisan, required to be able to have conversations with people in our own families who think very differently about the current state of things in the United States. And so for us, I don't mean it to sound trite, but it really is like, this is no different than if I'm, you know, talking to some uncle or aunt somewhere about what I do and what I work on. When you're talking about community well-being, public safety, and good stewardship of taxpayer dollars, that isn't a partisan issue, frankly. It is a good governance, it is a civil rights, and it is a, I don't know, common sense conversation. And I was going to say, I think that 
a part of my role with PJI is really engaging the community and engaging like some of these grassroots organizations that have been speaking on it, but maybe on a local level. But how do we then empower them to engage with the, the various system actors? So when we're talking about how do they engage with those judges, with those legislators? So, you know, I think that it's important to hear the voices of the people that are directly impacted. And one thing a legislator told me um, when I spoke with him, he said, Zaria, in order for change to really happen, is going to come from our constituents, for community members coming up, meeting with us, talking with us. And so I think that people have to be educated and empowered to be able to do that, to have those real conversations, to hold people accountable to the things that they say they're going to do. So if there is going to be bill reform in the state of Ohio, you know, what does that look like? Are you actually talking and hearing from the people who've been directly impacted by the system? And then are you open to hearing and receiving the feedback from them, whether it be positive or negative? And then what are the next steps? And then empowering those people in those communities in these grassroots organizations to follow through with what they've learned and to work to really have a voice in these different spaces. But I think there's a way for people to be able to come together and and to have meaningful conversation. And just in talking with our various partners here in Ohio, which as Sharice just said, like extreme ends, you know, across the board, everyone that I've talked to, every single person has this shared value that freedom should not have a cost associated with it. And so I appreciate the fact that I am able to work with various groups and organizations to really help provide that support for communities and for um, some of these smaller organizations that are doing the work as well. And I wanted to return back to this idea of messaging. Something that I found is that, you know, there are some stakeholders who say, if we let out some of these folks who can't afford bail, I'm detaining them because I think they're, you know, a, a risk to the community. And then there's some grassroots community members who also feel like, hey, there are no services within my community. Um, if this person gets out, they can actually pose a safety risk. How, how is your messaging changed or is it the same type of messaging that you use for both groups or is it in a strategic framework to address those concerns? As the country was turning its awakening or having an awakening around mass incarceration in the aftermath of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, that we should be standing on every street corner with a picket sign to say, listen, where do you think mass incarceration is being felt? Who do you think is the largest population of people experiencing mass incarceration? This notion that even I grew up believing, which was the, ma the vast majority of people who are arrested are arrested for serious violent crime, and the world is terribly unsafe. When you look at the data, it's actually completely the opposite. 6% of people arrested in this country will ever serve time in state prison. So you're dealing with 94% of arrests, 94% of almost 11 million arrests per year being handled at your local, you know, sort of in a municipal or county court system and jail system. Of those folks, the vast majority, 80% of all arrests actually, are for misdemeanors. And so I think for us, it's been about messaging first around the facts. And then the harder conversation that we're starting to have now is confronting one's self about the system and the data and the outcomes we have and what that must say about our values. One of our core values is integrity and trans, you know, transparency at PJI. And so we're just going to tell you like it is. You're going to not like it sometimes. You're not going to like it a lot of the times. 
are folks in Cuyahoga County not happy with some of the things that we've said about what's actually happening in Cuyahoga County. But until you face what's actually happening, there is no meaningful change to be had. We think that actually buys a lot of credibility because you're not going to get a different story out of us depending on where we are. But we also think that it's important to make sure that folks understand anything you want to accomplish in any space of public policy. Its core and foundational component is equity. And that conversation, and there are no differences between conversations around housing and employment, healthcare, child welfare, and criminal justice. And Zaria, from your role and with the understanding that the majority of people who are arrested aren't arrested because they pose significant violent safety risk, how does that inform how you move through the community and how you, you message and connect with folks on this issue? I think for me, it's just really important to first actually hear from the people. So um, engaging in the different communities, listening to what people's lived experiences have been with the system, and then just really taking the time to develop how we're going to present information based on what their current knowledge base is. So for me, looking at things from a racial equity perspective is just what I do. It's not something that I think about. I take into consideration here in Ohio, um, our various systems and then the communities specifically that are impacted by what does that mean as far as, you know, the work that we're doing, the messages that we're sending, the information that we're really being able to provide for them. So right now, um, my goal is to really target some of the areas in the various counties where we see a disproportionate amount of people who are impacted by the bail system that is in place right now in these different counties, as well as voter turnout, honestly, because that's another piece of it as far as just that being informed, you know, people being informed and being knowledgeable about um, what's going on in their community. So from a racial equity perspective, I feel like it's just integrated in to the work that's being done. And um, as I'm learning the information here at PJI, as far as just our curriculum and and the work that we're presenting to the different communities and stakeholders, that's just a part of who I, you know, who I am and how I present when I communicate with people. And so we're really, really working uh, with the various community partners and organizations to make sure that people have a voice and feel like they are knowledgeable about this subject matter. Because I think that most people, even within the communities that are impacted, they're thinking, oh, these people must have did horrible things and they must have, you know, went out and committed these really heinous crimes. And they don't understand that the majority of the people that are in the system, as has already been mentioned, are in there for like misdemeanors and really low level offenses. And so looking at it from that racial equity perspective, but also just looking at it from a systems perspective as a whole. I see. Yeah, that's such a meaningful approach to start with dialogue and then expand from there. I wanted to go back to something Shree said. You mentioned that in 2006, pretrial justice bill reform wasn't necessarily on the agenda in the criminal justice reform space. So what's next in this phase of pretrial reform and how do we continue moving the conversation so bail and pretrial reform remain center? When we got here in 2006 and we sat around and said, who should care? about the fact that there are gobs and gobs of people sitting in pretrial detention across the country who are simply there due to an inability to post a money bond. They've been technically legally released by the court. They've been told they can go home and they've been told the ransom associated with their freedom, right? 
And for listeners who think that's a dramatic phrase, let me just say this. I don't know what else you call it when someone tells you what it costs to get out of a box. And the hypocrisy implied in that is that if you have money, you're not dangerous. And so who's the number one actor in the system who cares about the size of the jail? And people might think, oh, well, you must be talking about the sheriff. But actually, no. What we knew was it was county commissioners. Given that about seven out of every $10 spent at the local level go to this criminal justice complex, it's the most significant expenditure at the county level. And county commissioners should at least know what to ask in those budget hearing questions. And so we went to the National Association of Counties and said, your constituents need to understand what's happening. So that's how we started. And once we began that, we just moved on to other system actors. And then we went to judges and we went to DAs and we went to public defenders. And we're just persistent. This is what it is to be from the Midwest. You are a persistent individual who does not like to be told that something can't be done. I mean, in the 2010 census, in my hometown, 24% of people in Canton uh, identify themselves as Black. The median income for a family is $35,000. Many bail amounts are $35,000, $100,000. And so this has a huge impact on people of color and people who are, you know, in the 80% of the U.S. population who barely make enough to live. And there's really good reason to care. So what's next for pretrial reform, for bail reform? For us at PJI, it's about taking our entire organization through an equity transformation, transforming our board, and the impact that will have on our theory of change is something Zaria is already sort of experimenting with in Ohio. That's where we're conducting an experiment about what does it look like to be actually community-led, but still system actor-focused. We're going to continue to sort of push beyond the current imagination of pretrial reform, which is pretrial services, and say, can you choke off the expenditures on pretrial supervision and surveillance in favor of investment in community, really in terms of investing in communities such that folks aren't coming into contact with law enforcement in the first place? And I was going to say, I just participated in a conference here, and we talked about what does it look like just here in Ohio in general. And a lot of people talked about being able to really wrap around services for people. So when you see that a person is actually in need of assistance, like not penalizing them by keeping them in jail, but what type of services can we plug them into? What type of resources can we provide as we are working to engage across the board and bring people together is just, again, going to be important to be in a space of listening and to be willing to engage and hear what the people who are impacted have to say about those experiences. And if you wanted to leave something for our listeners, either resources, some hope, what would you say? I would just say that it starts with the listeners. It starts with the listeners becoming engaged in this space, gathering information, feeling like they have a voice, whether they be community members, whether they be some of the system actors we talked about, we all have a role in this. And it's important for us to come together to um, really make sure that we are doing the right thing for our communities and for human beings. Excellent. Well, thank you both. This was incredibly illuminating and I loved hearing your perspective and I'm sure the listeners will too. 
What can we do to inform our legislators and stakeholders to avoid the pitfalls of other states like D.C. and California that overly rely on electronic monitoring or even risk assessment tools? We need to demand state oversight in regards to the expansion of electronic monitoring, the fines, fees, and accurate data collection. Listen to the communities when we talk about the compounded harms of restricted pretrial conditions. This is in addition to calling for procedural safeguards for setting bail, fixing systemic issues and bail setting procedures, data collection, and calling for conditions that are not overly intrusive or unnecessary. We cannot make electronic monitoring yet another purchase of freedom. And often these fees are ongoing, so someone who would be otherwise successful can have their liberty revoked at any time. We need to improve the public's understanding of pretrial conditions and move away from systems that rely on punishment and surveillance instead of support. We need to dismantle digital jails, driving defendants into debt. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a project of the ACLU of Ohio. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Again, we're your co-hosts, Malik Tamalaku and Selena Cumming. And this podcast would not be made possible without our village of amazing colleagues, Claire Chevrier, James Kosmatka, and Jeff Miller. Music and editing by Dan Rogan. Mix and mastering by Sean Rule Hoffman. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Twitter at ACLU Ohio and on Facebook and Instagram at ACLUOH. Check out our bill website at ohbillreform.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.